This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. Well, hey, how y'all doing? We're starting a brand new series today called The Center of It All. I really believe that if we can dig into this for the next three weeks, we're going to cover some ground that can have a profound daily impact on your life. You see, if you're an NBA fan, you may remember that back in the, the 80s and the 90s, stadiums were not named after major corporations, right? You did not have the Staples Center in Los Angeles or things like the Bank of America Stadium. The stadiums had grand names like Madison Square Garden, right? And if you lived in Atlanta and you watched the Hawks, you watched them play in a place that was called the Omni. I mean, just the name, right? It sounds like it's some kind of up-class, high-class place to go watch an event. The Omni was central in downtown Atlanta. And in the mid-'90s, the rumor became that the Omni, the property, had been sold. And as that rumor began to shift and float around the city, I had a friend who worked in downtown Atlanta at that point. He said, you know, it, it, the, not only was it, it, it sold, but the rumor became that it was going to be torn down. And so his office was in eye shot of the Omni. So every day when he would drive in, he'd look to see what was happening. And every morning, a truck would come in. A couple guys get out of the truck, and they'd go into the Omni. And then the afternoon when he was getting off and he was leaving, the same guys would come out of the Omni, get in their truck, and leave. And the joke around his office became, there's no way. You cannot dismantle this with two guys in a truck, right? You need some wrecking balls, some bulldozers. You need some big time, right, trucks to haul out all of that material. There's no way you can get it done with just a few guys. And he was gone for a couple weeks on business. And when he was driving in to work, the streets were blocked off. And he was witness to this event. Watch this. That's our inside the Omni cam there, which will. Yes, we did. Whoa. Oh. It's shaking the building quite a bit. And there goes the Omni. In just a few seconds, what had been a, a trademark of downtown Atlanta was imploded into a large pile of rubble. You see, what they didn't recognize was every day when those couple of guys would get out of that truck, they went into the heart of that facility and strategically began to dismantle the center of it to take out bolts, to remove strategically support beams so that they could place detonation charges and implode the building. You see, life looks a lot like that. We've watched from a distance as we've seen lives, great lives, lives that we've, of people that we love, people we care about. We've watched them implode. And I'm here to tell you today that that didn't happen because of one tragic mistake. It happened because something had dismantled the center of their lives. 
You see, the center matters. And so I'm going to take you through four statements that we have processed this before as a church. It's been a while. And so some of y'all weren't around for that. Some of y'all might not remember that. So we're just going to play a little catch up here together. What is at the center? The first thing that I want you to understand is that our lives naturally wrap themselves around something. It's natural for our lives to do that. See, your lives, when you think about it, may revolve around your children. They might revolve around your work. They might revolve around a hobby or an activity. They might revolve around your finances. All of those things are good things. And it is quite easy to let our lives wrap around them. Your life will naturally revolve around something. There will be a center in your life. You see, the reason number two that centers are so important is what is at the center of our life will be our greatest source of strength. But I, I, I want to point out something broader than that. We're going to look at the issue of strength today, but what is at the center of our lives will be the greatest source of joy, the greatest source of contentment, the greatest source of strength in our lives. You see, the thing is, is that number three, if we get that wrong, the results can be devastating. If we get the center wrong, the results of that decision can be Thoroughly devastating. That's where we sit back and watch the life implode. And from a distance you see it happen, but you do not know how long the interior of that life has been being dismantled. Number four, this is vitally important. If we can get it right, if we can get the center right, we'll find the life that we've been looking for. If we get the center right, we'll find the life that we've been looking for. Now, I, I just want to kind of remind you of something that many of us have talked about, but without spending some time occasionally reminding you of this, we kind of forget it, we skirt it, we run around it. Why, why do we call ourselves vortex? Well, it's really kind of anchored in that truth that our lives naturally will create a sinner. So let's go to John 14, 6, and look what Jesus said. The boldest statement ever made in human history, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We live in a world that does not like that statement. Because we live in a world that says to us that it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, whether you're a a Muslim, it doesn't matter whether you're a Hindu or a Buddhist, whether you're Sikh or seeker. It doesn't matter whatever path you look, it all leads to God. And Jesus says, that's just a bunch of bull. Because the only way to get to the Father is through me. And in that moment... He's either absolutely crazy, he's either completely lying to us, or he is God himself. The only way, and he tells us what that way looks like, that he is truth, he is life. Jesus 
is the way. See, Jesus is not only the, the center of our lives, he's who we follow, he's who we want to get close to. So we would tell you two statements, these are in your notes, that we believe that Jesus is the only center to an authentic life. The kind of life that God wants to give us can only be centered on Jesus. A relationship, your kids, jobs, passions, all of those things are good things, but they make bad God things, Okay? And what's at the center of our life is what our God naturally is. And the second statement is that we believe that life is not so much about going higher or going deeper as it is about going farther or taking the next step. That's why we use that term next steps a lot. See, let me kind of expose that statement for a moment. Okay, in, in Christian circles, a lot of times people will say, I just want to go a little higher. I just want to go higher. I just want to go higher. And really that term higher often describes experience. Like I just want to experience more of God. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying, God, I, I, I really want to experience the fullness of your presence. Deeper is where many of us say, you know, I really just want to learn more. I, I want to I grasp some complex ideas. I, I want to, to intellectually be wowed. And the Christian life is not in its end defined by either one of those as much as it is by going farther. And here's why. By going farther, taking the next step, that refers to obedience. And God has said point blank, I'd rather you obey me than make sacrifices for me. Right? And in that context, he's actually talking about worship-oriented sacrifices. God's saying, I, rather than you having feelings or feeling like you've accomplished anything, do what I've asked you to do. So here's what we think life should look like. This is a diagram that's been around since the beginning. That we would experience God and then respond to him in obedience with Jesus as our center, constantly on a journey to get close. That looks like a vortex. That's where our name came from. That's why we call ourselves vortex, because when we get the center right, that's who we're experiencing and responding to, right? If you got the center wrong, you're going to constantly experience and respond to the wrong thing. If we get the center right, we get life right. So I want to go to John chapter 4. I want to look at a conversation, just real briefly, that Jesus had with a woman, a Samaritan woman. Jesus is traveling, and he is passing through Samaria. Now, uh, Samaria, for most of us that are not very familiar with the Bible, you kind of don't really understand. Let me explain it to you in Stanley County terminology, okay? Samaria is the other side of the tracks, all right? All of our small towns have the other side of the tracks, right? That part of town that you don't want to go drop your kids off and let them play over there, right? right? The people that you don't want to uh, associate with. The people that, that really, culturally, we, we try to keep a little distance between ourselves. And somehow Jesus finds himself on the other side of the tracks, traveling, and he's thirsty and in need of some rest. 
And so he instructs his cohorts, his disciples, let's, let's stop, let's rest, let's take a moment, let's pause. So they go to a well to draw some water because they don't have quick checks or convenience stores, right? Not just like, let me stop and give me a Coke or anything. So they stop off at a well. Jesus' disciples leave him. He's left really alone. It's the middle of the day. And in a peculiar moment, a woman comes to get water. Now, see, in those days, women would not come in the middle of the day because it would be hot, right? It would be a little bit more difficult to do all the work of lugging a ton of water back and forth to your home. Most women would go in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening, but this woman shows up in the middle of the day. Jesus has a conversation with her. I want you to understand some things as this begins to unfold. In the first century, it was not that normal for a man to address a woman in public. Okay? But Jesus does. It was highly unusual for a good Jew to have a conversation with a Samaritan. But Jesus does. And as he begins to talk to this woman who's there to draw water in the middle of the day, he exposes her for who she is. She's been married multiple times, and now she's not even living with a husband. She's living with another man. And she's at that well in the middle of the day because shame has kept her from being a part of the culture that they live in. So Jesus isn't just talking to a woman or a Samaritan. He's talking to a harlot. And he says this in John 4, 10. So Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He goes on to tell her that if she were able to drink from this water, she'd never thirst again. See, which is a perplexing kind of statement there, right? Because we're standing in the middle of a hot day at a well. But Jesus is saying, hey, you're in this position right now because your center has been wrong. The center of your life has been a relationship with a man. That's why you've chewed up husbands and spit them out. That's why you're living with a man that you're not married to right now. That's why, out of the shame of all of that, you're here in the middle of the day. Your center's wrong. But I have something for you. I have something that if you embrace this, you'll never be thirsty again. That's a powerful, powerful reality because many of us have embraced the wrong center. And if we're going to do this life the way that God wants us to, if we're going to endeavor to go on a lifelong journey to place Jesus at the center of our life, we have got to get this right because what's at the center is our greatest source of strength. You see, and that word strength is deceptive. It's, it's, it's tough for us because in, in our language, when you go in and do some etymology on the, the word strength and start understanding the way that we understand that definition, most of the time we understand strength in the terms of force or power. 
So when I ask you if you're strong, you would say, yes, I'm strong. I can take this barbell and push it up and down this many times. Yes, I'm a strong leader because when I'm leading people, I have the strength to get them to do what I want them to do. Yes, I'm a strong performer because when I go to perform, I actually have the power to do what I'm supposed to do. We think about strength in the terms of power and force. And we have projected that onto the way that we think God wants us to be strong. I'm going to give you just a simple illustration of that from Philippians 4. Philippians 4 says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's one of our our kind of life way verses, right? Most of y'all have a t-shirt that has that on there somewhere, right? Bumper stickers on the back of your car, plaques on the walls of your home, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But you want to know the way that we recite that verse in our culture, the way it comes out? We stop about halfway through. We say, I can do all things. Y'all, Jesus is living in me. I can do anything. Check it out. I can do, the Bible says I can do all things. I'm so strong. Look at how strong I am. The Bible says that if there's something coming against me, all I got to do is say it and it's gone. If I, want a new, if I want a new job, if I want a promotion at work, all I got to do, I'm strong enough. I can do all things. But the Bible doesn't say you can do all things. The Bible says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I want you to understand that that verse says you can do nothing. The verse says that you're remarkably incapable. You're completely powerless. That you can do all things, but the only way that you can actually accomplish them is if Christ works in you. And in the way that we think about it, that is not a very strong posture, but that's the kind of strength that God wants us to live with. It's actually quite vulnerable. As opposed to being the one who says, I can do it. It's the one that says, I can't do it. The only way I can even come close to doing it is if God chooses to show up and do it inside of me. That's a very different way to approach being strong. I'd like to take a moment this morning as we get ready to kind of narrow this down a little bit and deal with this for us. To show you a clip of a TED Talk. This is a researcher. Her name is Brene Brown. She works at the University of Houston. She specializes in uh, sociology, studying human behavior, specifically studying vulnerability and how it impacts our ability as a person to connect with someone else. And I'd like you to watch a little bit, and then I'm going to come back and unpack this for you. Watch this. Very quickly, really about six weeks into this research, I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way that I didn't understand or had never seen. And so I pulled back out of the research and thought, I need to figure out what this is. And it turned out to be shame. And shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me 
that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection. The things I can tell you about it, it's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. No one wants to talk about it, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. What underpinned this shame, this I'm not good enough, which we all know that feeling, I'm not blank enough, I'm not thin enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough. Um, the thing that underpinned this was excruciating vulnerability. This idea of in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. What they had in common was a sense of courage. And I want to separate courage and bravery for you for a minute. Courage, the original definition of courage, when it first came into the English language, it's from the Latin word cur, meaning heart. And the original definition was to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. And so these folks had, very simply, the courage to be imperfect. They had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others, because as it turns out, we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. And the last was they had connection, and this was the hard part, as a result of authenticity. They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were, which is you have to absolutely do that for connection. Um, and one of the ways we deal with it is we numb vulnerability. And I think there's evidence, and it's not the only reason this evidence exists, but I think that there, it's a, a, a huge cause. We are the most in-debt, obese, addicted, and medicated adult cohort in US history. The problem is, and I learned this from the research, that you cannot selectively numb emotion. You can't say, here's the bad stuff. Here's vulnerability, here's grief, here's shame, here's fear, here's disappointment. I don't want to feel these. I'm going to have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin. <laughs> I don't want to feel these. And I know that's, no I know that's knowing laughter. I, I hack into your lives for a living. I know that's, <laughs> God. Um, you can't numb those hard feelings without numbing the other affects or emotions. You cannot selectively numb. So when we numb those, we numb joy. We numb gratitude. We numb happiness. And then we are miserable and we are looking for purpose and meaning. And then we feel vulnerable. So then we have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin. And it becomes this dangerous cycle. See, our capacity to be vulnerable, to experience the kind of strength that only God can give us is deeply connected to shame. So what I want to do is spend the next few minutes unpacking that for you, giving you some steps to actually address that so that we can embrace the strength that God wants to give us. The first thing that we need to understand about shame is shame is deeply connected to sin. Throughout the context of all the scriptures, we have uh, seen over and over and over again that shame is connected to sin. And here's, I, I just want to provide some understanding for you. Most of us have, have lived in, 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 a, in a 
personal culture and in a local culture that has helped us identify sin by saying that guy picking up the six pack at the grocery store, that guy sinning, right? Those people that are going into the R-rated movie, those are sinners, right? We, we've learned to identify sin that way. But that's a really bad way to identify sin. See, let me help you here, okay? I'm going to provide a, a new definition for what sin is. Sin is you being anything that God didn't create you to be. You see, the word sin in the Greek language is an archery term. It literally means to miss the mark, that there's a mark, a calling that God has for our life, a pinpoint that God wants us to go to, and we miss it. That's what sin is. So when you know God has called you to be kind and you're not kind, you have sinned. When you know God has called you to be patient and you weren't patient, you have sinned. And God's response to our sin is to lovingly convict us. God is that voice inside that says you shouldn't have done that. I want you to be, I created you to be a different way. I created you to love your husband. And when you're not loving your husband, that is the voice that you feel inside. And here's what happens when God convicts us. When God convicts us, when we respond in repentance, repentance propels us into obedience. But when we respond by ignoring it, it becomes shame. When we ignore God's conviction, it becomes shame. And shame is devastating to our lives. Shame will shut you down. It will isolate you. It will eliminate your capacity to be vulnerable and intimate with people that you love. The second thing that we need to understand about shame and vulnerability is that our capacity to be vulnerable is connected to how we process shame. You see, when we make that decision in God's convicting moment of how we respond to it, will we respond by, to God's conviction with repentance, with confession and repentance, or will we respond by ignoring what God says? You see, that's going to set up what happens next because shame produces more shame. As a matter of fact, in the research, they find that if you don't speak about it, if you don't address it, all it does is get worse. It doesn't stay the same. There is no option. Like, it, you're, like whatever's you right now, you do not get to stay the same. If you're living with shame, it will grow. You see, that shame, as it grows, will also begin to incapacitate your ability to deal with other situations. I just want to bring two to the surface and show you how they work in light of control. 
okay? This has broad implications, but I just want to show you how it works in, in this spectrum, okay? Uh, multiple times having worked with young couples where a, a husband has pursued a relationship outside of marriage. Sinful, okay? Wrong, broken. But somewhere in the background, in that wife's processing, she thinks, this is my fault. I wasn't the wife that I needed to be. But understanding that it's his fault, she never says that. She never deals with the shame that's associated with the fact that she's dealing with some of this. So what does she do? She resolves in her heart, I will do whatever it takes to keep it from happening again. I will control him because I wasn't controlling last time. So I will tell him where he can go and where he can't go. And when he does something that I don't think is right, when I start to see him deviating from the path, I will shame him until he gets back on the path that I've designated for him. Because there's shame that hasn't been dealt with. And I want you to understand that I've dealt with parents who have suffered significant injuries and went through some pretty devastating things with their kids. And it is so common to see a parent say, it was my fault. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I, I, I wasn't aware of all the safety issues. I, I wasn't present. I wasn't, I was too busy doing something else. And I wasn't in control in that moment, but I will be in control from this moment on. My kid will be safe because I will keep them safe. You see, that's not at all a healthy perspective. Our kids stay safe because Jesus keeps them safe. And because we stay faithful to him. You see, when shame is left untreated, it will infect the way that we live from that point on. But here's the good news. Number three, the good news of Jesus is that we don't have to live with shame. We don't have to live with it. God has designed a way that we can escape shame. In Isaiah 61, the Bible says of Jesus that Jesus would be wounded for our iniquities, bruised, murdered. He would bleed and die. Right, This great prophetic chapter looking forward to the death of Jesus as the ransom from our sin. And Isaiah 61 verse 7 says this, Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will receive your inheritance. You see, because of Jesus, because of what he gave us on the cross, he took our shame when he took our sin. He took our failures when he bore our iniquities. Your shame has been covered by the blood of of Jesus. Your shame has been covered by the blood of Jesus. So before we kind of take any step forward, let's address how do we deal with shame. 1 John 1 9 says that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us. 1 John 1 9, if we confess, you want to know how you get rid of shame? 
You speak it. That's how you get rid of shame. You say it. You see, shame will grow in silence. But when there is light that comes to it, when we speak it, all of a sudden, we embrace vulnerability. And you know, the thing about being vulnerable is that every one of you out there, you all think, if I'm vulnerable, I'm weak. I know you do. That's not being strong. But let me just kind of help you understand that it is. Because anytime you've ever watched somebody stand on a stage and share something from the depths of their soul that was painful and difficult, you've sat right there, looked at them and thought, that takes such courage, that takes such strength to do that. You see, being vulnerable is being strong. So I want to look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is the verse that we're carrying on our arms this year, verse 1. As the uh, Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11, comes to a close, it's almost as as if the writer of the Hebrews writes about a, a baton race where the baton of faith has been handed off from Abraham, Isaac, down the line, and, and then there's Jesus standing like, here's the baton, I'm going to hand it to you. And I want you to see what the Bible says about how we should run this race. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, that lets us run, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the verse that we've focused on this year. Let us run with endurance the race that God has before us. But I want you to look at verse 2 because it tells us how we can do it. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured, endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in a place of honor beside God's throne. On the cross, Jesus dismantled shame. And if you're living in shame today, you're living in a way that is dismantling the life that God wants to give you. Because the only way you can live in his strength is to be vulnerable. But he has taken that shame, destroyed it, and offered you living water and a new life. Just like that woman who came to the well in the middle of the day, as Jesus talked to her and said, I know there's something going on. You've had the wrong center in your life, but today, if you will drink from this fountain, You will never go thirsty. The same invitation is available for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in the midst of a world that has offered us a thousand things to make the center of our lives, that you still remain the authentic center. God, some of us have had our centers dismantled.
And we're just moments away from the crushing blow that would lead to an implosion. Some of us, God, have lived lives that have pursued good things at the center. We've, we've made a relationship, a person, maybe even our kids or our jobs, the center of our life. But God, only you can be the center that brings life and truth, hope, peace. Only you at the center can lead us to a place of authentic vulnerability where you're the strength even in the midst of our profound weakness. So God, we look to you today. With nobody talking, everybody being quiet, heads bowed, eyes closed. Let me ask you today, if you're living with Jesus at the center of your life, Is Jesus the center of your life? Is he the greatest source of strength, the greatest source of joy, the greatest source of fulfillment in your life? Or you have possibly, have you let something else take over the center of your life? If you're here today and you say, that's me but I want to change it. I want to get it right. All you have to be is just like that woman in that moment when Jesus offered her a new life. All you have to do is receive it. You can do it right where you're sitting right now. Do you want that life with him at the center? If that's you and you say, that's me, I've been living with the wrong center in my life, but I need Jesus at the center of my life. Would you raise your hand right now? That's me. I need Jesus at the center of my life. Awesome. Anybody else? I want to ask a question for everybody else. Have you been trying to do it on your own? Or have you embraced the fact that you are completely powerless and you have to live in the vulnerability of letting God be your strength? Maybe today's the first time you've come against that. Maybe today's the moment you let go of trying to do it your own way and embrace that you can only do it if God does it His way through you. If that's you and you say, that's me, I wanna, I, I've been running from God, but I want to do it His way. I love Him, but I haven't been living with His strength. Raise your hand right now. Awesome. God, for those that are here today that need you to be the center of their lives, for those that need you to be their strength, God, please come and by your grace and mercy, be their strength, their center. In the name of Jesus, we pray.